Section 27 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 58 Irish Ideas, Part 3. Of course, there were many excellent landlords, humane and kindly men, men too who saw the wisdom of being humane and kind but in the majority of cases the landlords and the agents held firmly by what seemed to them the right of property the right to get as high a price for a piece of land as it would fetch in open competition the demand for land was so great the need of land was so vital that men would offer any price for it men would offer prices which they must have known they could never pay which they must have known the land would never enable them to pay offering land for hire in ireland was like offering money on loan to needy spendthrifts any terms would be snatched at by the desperate borrower to-day no matter what was to happen to-morrow when the tenant had got hold of his piece of land he had no idea of cultivating it to the best of his strength and opportunities why should he the moment his holding began to show a better appearance that moment he might look to having his rent raised or to being turned out in favour of some competitor who offered higher terms for occupation why should he improve whenever he was turned out of the land he would have to leave his improvements for the benefit of the landlord or the newcomer he was therefore content to scratch the soil instead of really cultivating it he extracted all he could from it in his short day he lived from hand to mouth from hour to hour the whole system of feudal tenure of land under a master was new to ireland it began with ireland's conquest and it was identified in the mind of the irish peasant with ireland's degradation everything was there that could make oppression bitter the landlord began to be looked upon at last as the tenant's natural enemy ribbon societies were formed for the protection of the tenant the protection afforded was only too often that of terrorism and assassination the ribbonism of the south and west of ireland was as strictly the product of the land system of the country as the trades union outrages in england were the offspring of the unequal and unjust legislation that gave all the power to the master and lent no protection to the workmen all the while five out of every six english writers and political speakers were discoursing gravely on the incurable idleness and lawlessness of the celtic race and the irish peasant the law gave the irish tenant no security for the fruit of his labour and englishmen wondered that he was not laborious the law told him that when he had sown he should not be entitled to reap and englishmen were angry that he would not persist in sowing imperial legislation showed itself his steadfast enemy and englishmen marvelled at his want of respect for the law in one province of ireland indeed a better condition of things existed over the greater part of ulster the tenant rights system prevailed this system was a custom merely but it had gradually come to acquire something like the force of law the principle of tenant right was that a man should be allowed to remain in undisturbed possession of his holding as long as he paid his rent 
that he should be entitled on giving up the land to compensation for unexhausted improvements and that he should be at liberty to sell the goodwill of his farm for what it would fetch in the market the tenant was free to do what a man who has a long lease of any holding may do he might sell to any bidder of whom his landlord approved the right to enter on the occupancy of the place wherever this tenant right principle prevailed there was industry there was prosperity where it did not prevail was the domain of poverty idleness discontent and crime the one demand of the irish agricultural population everywhere was for some form of fixity of tenure let it be sought by legalizing the ulster custom everywhere or by declaring that men should hold their land as long as they paid a fair rent to be fixed by authorized and impartial valuation or by some plan of establishing a peasant proprietary let the demand be made as it would there was substantially one demand and one only security of tenure the demand was neglected or refused by generations of english statesmen chiefly because no statesman would take the trouble to distinguish between words and things between shadowy pedantic theories and clear substantial facts tenant right said lord palmerston amid the cheers of an assembly mainly composed of landlords is landlords wrong lord palmerston forgot that the landlord like every one else in the commonwealth holds even his dearest rights of property subject to the condition that his assertion of them is not inconsistent with the general wheel the landlord holds his land as the shipowner holds his ship and the railway company its lines of rail subject to the right of the state to see that the duties of possession are properly fulfilled and that the ownership is not allowed to become a public danger and a nuisance land is from its very nature from the fact that it cannot be increased in extent and that the possession by one man is the exclusion of another land is the form of property over which the state would most naturally be expected to reserve a right of ultimate control yet english statesmen for generations complacently asserted the impossibility of any legislative interference with the right of the landlord as if legislation had not again and again interfered with the right of the factory owner the owner of mines the possessor of railway shares the shopkeeper the right of the master over his apprentice the mistress in the hire of her maid of all work long years before lord palmerston talked so decisively of the landlord's right a man of far more truly conservative mind than lord palmerston had defined in a few sentences the limits of private or corporate rights in his speech on fox's east india measure burke frankly met this difficulty about individual and corporate rights he was speaking for the moment especially of chartered corporations but of course a single owner of property can claim no greater right than a company of property owners it has been said if you violate this charter what security has the charter of the bank in which public credit is so deeply concerned and even the charter of london in which the rights of so many subjects are involved i answer in the like case they have no security at all no no security at all if the bank should by every species of mismanagement 
fall into a state similar to that of the east india company if it should be oppressed with demands it could not answer engagements which it could not perform and with bills for which it could not procure payment no charter should protect such mismanagement from correction and such public grievances from redress if the city of london had the means and the will of destroying an empire and of cruelly oppressing and tyrannizing over millions of men as good as themselves the charter of the city of london would prove no sanction to such tyranny and such oppression charters are kept when their purposes are maintained they are violated when the privilege is supported against its end and its object if ever there was a creature of law and of authority acting in place of law it was the landlordism of ireland it was a plantation made by the orders of english sovereigns and governments it was not a growth of the soil it was strictly an exotic it was imposed upon the country and the people it could not plead in support of any of its alleged rights even that prescriptive title which grows up with the growth of an institution that has held its place during all the ages to which tradition or memory goes back the landlordism of ireland was compared with most european institutions a thing of the day before yesterday it was the creation of conquest the impost of confiscation it could plead no title whatever to maintain an unlimited right of action in opposition to the welfare of the people on whom it was forced at least it could claim no such title when once the time had passed away which insisted that the right of conquest superseded all other human rights that the tenant like the slave had no rights which his master was bound to respect and that the commonweal meant simply the interests and privileges of the ruling class the moment the title of the irish land system came to be fairly examined it was seen to be full of flaws it was dependent on conditions that had never been fulfilled it had not even made the landlord class prosperous it had not even succeeded as no doubt some of its founders intended that it should succeed in colonizing the island with english and scotch settlers when the famine of eighteen forty six and eighteen forty seven had tried the whole system with its gaunt stern hand legislation had perforce to interfere with the fancied rights of landlordism and invent a new judicial machinery for taking from the broken-down owner what he could keep no longer with profit to himself or the country for generations the land tenure system of ireland had been the subject of parliamentary debate and parliamentary inquiry the devon commission had made ample investigation of its principles and its operation mr sharman crawford had in vain devoted an honest life to the advocacy of tenant right mr cardwell mr chichester fortescue lord nass had introduced measures trying more or less feebly to deal with irish land tenure nothing came of all this the supposed right of the landlord stopped the way the one simple demand of the occasion was as we have shown security of tenure and it was an article of faith with english statesmanship until mr gladstone's time that security for the tenant was confiscation for the landlord 
Mr. Gladstone came into power full of genuine reforming energy and without the slightest faith in the economic wisdom of our ancestors. In a speech delivered by him during his electioneering campaign in Lancashire, he had declared that the Irish upas tree had three great branches, the state church, the land tenure system, and the system of education, and that he meant to hew them all down if he could. His figure of speech met with a good deal of contemptuous literary criticism, but it expressed a very resolute purpose. On February 15, 1870, Mr. Gladstone introduced his Irish Land Bill into the House of Commons. The measure was one of far greater importance as regarded its principles than it proved to be in its practical operation. In plain words, what it did was to recognize the fact that the whole system of land tenure in Ireland, so far as it was the creature of law, was based upon a wrong principle. Mr. Gladstone's measure overthrew once for all the doctrine of the landlord's absolute and unlimited right. It recognized a certain property or partnership of the tenant in the land which he tilled. Mr. Gladstone took the Ulster tenant right, as he found it, and made it a legal institution. In places where the Ulster practice, or something analogous to it, did not exist, he threw upon the landlord the burden of proof as regarded the right of eviction. The tenant disturbed in the possession of his land could claim compensation for improvements, and the bill reversed the existing assumption of the law by presuming all improvements to be the property of the tenant, and leaving it to the landlord, if he could, to prove the contrary. The bill established a special judicial machinery for carrying out its provisions. It allowed the tribunals thus instituted to take into consideration not merely the strict legal conditions of each case, but also any circumstances that might affect the claim of the tenant as a matter of equity. Mr. Gladstone's great object was to bring about a state of things by virtue of which a tenant should not be dispossessed of his holding so long as he continued to pay his rent, and should in any case be entitled to full compensation for any substantial improvements which his energy or his capital might have effected. The bill met on the whole with a cordial reception from the Irish members of Parliament, although some of its clauses were regarded with a doubt and disfavour which subsequent events, we believe, showed to be well-founded. Mr. Gladstone allowed landlords, under certain conditions, to contract themselves out of the provisions of the bill, and these conditions were so largely availed of in some parts of Ireland that there were more evictions after the bill had become law than before it had yet been thought of. On this ground, the measure was actually opposed by a small number of the popular representatives of Ireland. The general opinion, however, then and since was that the bill was of inestimable value to Ireland in the mere fact that it completely upset the fundamental principle on which legislation had always previously dealt with Irish land tenure. It recognized a certain ownership on the part of the tenant as well as that of the landlord. The new principle thus introduced might well be denounced as revolutionary by certain startled Irish landlords. It put an end to the reign of the landlord's absolute power. It reduced the landlord to the level of every other proprietor, of every other man in the country who had anything to sell or to hire. 
it recognized the palpable fact that there are certain conditions which make the ownership of land a more responsible possession than the ownership of property which admits of limitless expansion the existing system of legislation had been founded not merely on injustice but on untruth it had denied the presence of conditions which were as certain and as palpable as the substance of the land itself therefore the new legislation might in one sense have well been called revolutionary it decided once for all against lord palmerston's famous dogma and declared that tenant right was not landlord's wrong that was in itself a revolution the bill passed without substantial alteration the conservatives as a party did not vote against the second reading a division was forced on but only eleven members voted against the motion that the bill be read a second time and of these only two or three belonged to the conservative party and only one mr henley was of any mark among the conservatives the small minority was chiefly made up of irish members who thought the bill inefficient and unsatisfactory long discussions in committee followed but the only serious attempt made to interfere with the actual principle of the measure an attempt embodied in an amendment moved by mr disraeli was defeated by a majority of more than seventy votes the bill was read a third time in the commons on may thirtieth a debate of three nights took place in the house of lords on the motion for the second reading and many nights of discussion were occupied in committee on august first eighteen seventy the bill received the royal assent the second branch of the upas tree had been hewn down but the woodsman's axe had yet to be laid to a branch of a tougher fibre well calculated to turn the edge of even the best weapon and to jar the strongest arm that wielded it mr gladstone had dealt with church and land he had yet to deal with university education he had gone with irish ideas thus far end of section twenty seven